Welcome to ACME Talks and Live Events. You are listening to a podcast from the Australian Centre for the Moving Image. This talk has been recorded in front of a live studio audience. This podcast is an audio recording of a live event. It may reference visual material that cannot be represented in this recording. It may also contain strong language and adult themes, which may not be suitable for younger audiences. And the opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of ACME. Uh, so for those who aren't aware of the program, Talking TV is ACME's ongoing series of events exploring the small screen. As part of the program, we've previously looked at everything from Game of Thrones and Scandinavian crime dramas uh, to Veronica Mars and Broad City. Uh, tonight, though, we're, of course, taking a look back at two seasons of Hannibal. Uh, we brought together a pretty amazing group of Hannaphiles for tonight's talk. Sorry for using that word. Um, and leading them will be this evening's host, writer and editor, Stephanie Van Schilt. Uh, Steph is a co-editor of the recently relaunched The Lifted Brow, is a co-host of the Rereaders podcast, and was previously the TV columnist for Kill Your Darlings. Uh, her writing has featured in various local, international, and online publications, including Crikey, Metro, and Junkie. And she's currently completing a PhD in creative writing at Monash University. Uh, she's also known to scream quite loudly during the scary bits of Hannibal. Um, something, something that I witnessed firsthand when watching the first episode of season two together when those workmen uncover the bloated body of that dude who escaped the super gross human tapestry thing. Um, anyhow, joining Steph on the couch tonight uh, to form a much less creepy tapestry of people. <laughs> Uh, is Craig Hildebrand-Burke, Sam Twyford-Moore and Amy Gray, all of whom you'll be introduced to very shortly. Uh, before we begin, though, a few spots of housekeeping. Um, spoilers, there's definitely going to be spoilers, so I'm sorry if you haven't seen the first two seasons, but with the, the third season about to begin, just putting that out there now, there's definitely going to be spoilers. Uh, we are recording to podcast tonight's talk, so if you could turn off your mobile phones, that would be great. Um, the doors that you came in on are now locked. If you need to leave at any time this evening, if you just enter and exit via this door just here, that would be great. And we will have some time for questions at the end. So if you had uh, any burning issues you wanted to raise with the speakers, hold on to those to the end. Uh, but for now, please join me in welcoming Steph and the panel. I was going to thank Sean, but I feel like he scream shamed me. Um, <laughs> Welcome, one and all, to this evening dedicated to the decadent and macabre world of our beloved Hannibal. You're obviously all here because you identify as Fannibals, that poor man too, that it's adopted by Hannibal fans around the world. world. Tonight, we Fannibals up here will be on a Hannibal. I would usually apologise for that portmanteau, but it's also stolen straight from Brian Fuller and co on their recent Comic-Con panel last year, so you can blame them. Anyway, while we wait to feast our eyes on the third season, tonight we dine on the minds of these fine folk who make up the panel. Amy, Sam and Craig, and myself, I will also be presenting a paper, uh, will serve up some Hannibal-inspired brain food and in the form of a short presentation. Then after each panelist, <laughs> panelist, it's really hard to say, <laughs> speaks about their Hannibal-based topic, we'll have a chat with each other before moving on to the next presentation. As Sean said, if, you're having, if you have any questions that you're just dying to ask, hold on to them till the end when there'll be a microphone allotted so you can spill your guts. So first up is Craig. Craig Hildebrand Burke is a writer and teacher from Melbourne. He's written both fiction and non-fiction in a variety of places that can be found on the internet 
In addition to writing regularly for Momentum, Pam McMillan's digital-only imprint on books, film and television. He also teaches literature and creative writing to secondary school students and has recently been a judge for the Aurealis Awards for both novels and short fiction in the horror genre. And he's currently writing a story on the horrors of boarding school. Welcome, Craig. So I'm going to talk a bit about the sort of evolution of the horror genre as it's sort of moved in the last couple of years with the two seasons of Hannibal. So Alfred Hitchcock famously quit that television has brought murder back into the home where it belongs. And in fact, many of you, Psycho, which he then made shortly after that quote, as his answer to the challenge of the new medium. The irony is that the legacy of Psycho has now been translated into Bates Motel, a TV show that dramatises and serialises the life of Hitchcock's antagonist and his mother. Horror, in the end, has once again come home. Since then, we then also have The Walking Dead, American Horror Story, and of course, Hannibal. And what we can see is a sort of migration in the genre towards the smaller screen. And this is sort of happening at the same time as horror films appear exhausted for new ideas. Since Psycho was first released, we've had The Exorcist, Jaws, Alien, The Shining, Rosemary's Baby, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Night of the Living Dead, and of course, Silence of the Lambs, all seen as pinnacles of cinematic horror. But most of these are adaptations from books. The two that aren't Night of the Living Dead and Texas Chainsaw Massacre borrowed quite heavily from cultural traditions or factual accounts. An alien itself was initially billed as Jaws in Space. The most recent of all these films, despite the quality of them, is Silence of the Lambs, which was made in 1990. And it's pretty much arguable that since then, with a handful of exceptions, horror cinemas pretty much peaked. And since then, we've been suffering under the weight of endless sequels, prequels, remakes, and reimaginings. So the move onto, of horror onto television is pretty much welcome. Because similarly on TV, we've been dealing with the consequences that Silence of the Lambs brought. Silence of the Lambs was a book-to-film adaptation that terrified us, but also won acclaim and awards. It pushed boundaries of the grotesque and encouraged us at the same time to celebrate the evil nature of its arch-villain, who quickly became a parody, if not through actual parodies, but through his inevitable sequels and prequels. Crime drama similarly began to do likewise. The murder mystery and police procedural, ever present on TV since the beginning, increasingly became motivated to emphasise the brutality of the murder, the evilness of the killers and the nobility of the detectives. We tune in each week to catch the latest serial killer. Even soap operas routinely use the death of a major character as ratings bait. Somebody somewhere really should do a body count. So in one sense, it's not surprising that Thomas Harris's characters have ended up on television. And yet, despite Hannibal being an adaptation of a very successful series of books, this is different to other enterprises like Game of Thrones. We're not the first-born audience for this story. This is not our first Hannibal. We're not the same audience who watched Silence of the Lambs and made endless jokes about Fiverr Beans and Chianti. We've become attuned to serial killers and murder investigations as a result of that film. It's our staple diet, and we've grown fat on it. Brian Fuller knows that you cannot simply do over Silence of the Lambs or Hannibal Lecter. Horror, more than any kind of genre, demands the imagination. Without it, there's no ghost, there's no monster. There isn't really anything creeping up behind us on the staircase in the abandoned house. Imagination is where horror lives, and it's no accident that Will Graham says his skills in the show rely more on his active imagination than anything else. So, Stephen King, interestingly enough, outlines three basic aspects of the genre, terror, horror, and gore. Terror is the dread and the fear, the anticipation. Horror is the scare, the jump, and the fright. And gore is pretty much just gore. 
Good horror traditionally has a balance of these three and in that order of preference. Aim for terror, punctuated by horror, and when in doubt, go with the gore. And certainly that's where horror has been living for the last 20 years, since Silence of the Lambs. The Walking Dead is a case in point. While there are gory moments in Hannibal, the show is much more than that. And to some degree, Hannibal is commenting on our tendency towards gore, certainly in the last two decades. Because we know the tropes of horror, we know the scares, even if we still sometimes fall for them, horror, as it has been, isn't working anymore. And Hannibal does something very different to what we've seen in the genre before, and it needs the medium of television in order to do it. So, Hannibal itself, as a horror show, is a terrifying show, and it is horrific. It's one show where I am thankful for having to wait a week between episodes, because it actually does take that long to recover from it. Uh, but it's a very different kind of horror. There are references, obviously, to the early films, to Silence of the Lambs, Manhunter and Red Dragon, but also to The Shining, to Blue Velvet, Jacob's Ladder, and ingeniously enough to The X-Files, when casting Gillian Anderson, who played Dana Scully, which was a character greatly influenced by Clarice Starling in Silence of the Lambs. So it clearly sees itself as part of the tradition. Brian Fuller has spoken about this, particularly in how it uses its source material, more as a sort of springboard into the Hannibal, rather than just reimagining it. So because of this, it's worth considering what Hannibal is doing as part of the horror tradition of storytelling. What becomes apparent as we watch the show is that Hannibal moves beyond horror as a visceral experience of entertainment, and instead pushes us towards a conscious engagement with the horror that we tolerate. It wants us to witness the inability of other characters, of Will Graham, Jack Crawford, Alana Bloom, Beverly Katz, their inability to see Hannibal for who he is when it seems so obvious to us. Because at the same time, it wants us to witness and to recognise our own blindness for what we tolerate in day-to-day, -day, in day-in, day-out television. We have a blindness to violence because we've domesticated it. It's house-trained. We invited it in. Like the mystery man says in David Lynch's Lost Highway, it's not our custom to go where we're not invited. And wanton, horrific, consequence-free violence has been residing in our television for decades. In this sense, TV is the perfect medium for horror. It's also the most horrific medium for dealing with our responsibility towards violence. So, I've, there's another scene later on. I've purposefully chosen scenes that aren't typically what we would consider horror, because to me, with the show, that's not where it lives. It does live in these scenes, these interactions between the characters. In this particular scene, Hannibal is both the villain we have celebrated over the years for his intellect, for his evilness, for his catchphrases and culinary skills, and his three-piece suits. But at the same time, we normally applaud in a victory over the villain. But what does that say about us? What does it say about our bloodlust when it comes to television? Will is interested in Hannibal not because of his villainy, but his proximity. The show makes us confront the stark realities about ourselves, about our bodies, which have been made into mosaics, into angels, beehives, trees, and totem poles, not to mention food. There is a fine line between alive and dead in the show, between Will and Hannibal, between us and the screen. And this is our penance for every iteration of law and order, and the same for CSI and for Dexter and Midsummer Murders and Broadchurch and Inspector Morse and A Touch of Frost and God help us for True Detective. As Will said in the scene, we can't lie to ourselves. Watching bad things happen to bad people feels good. We've relished in death on television for too long, and now we must pay the price. The show, in certainly the first two seasons, is our purgatory for every exploited death that's been served up as entertainment. If you take the very first scene of the very first episode as an example, we're at a crime scene of what is for the series a rather perfunctory murder. Someone has been casing the house and has murdered both the wife and the husband. But we enter this scene through Will Graham, 
where in what becomes a running technique for the character in the show, he adopts the first person. This is not a crime committed by a murderer. This is his, and this is ours. Gifted with a heightened sense of empathy, Will Graham enters into the action, kicking the door open, pulling the trigger, committing the murder. And he narrates, I shoot Mr. Marlowe twice, severing jugulars and cartoids with near-surgical precision. He will die watching me take what is his away from him. This is my design. He is the hero of the story in theory, but this is not his story. The show wants us to become much more empathic. Horror is not just migrated to the television. Television has become horror. It is interesting that the show's story begins with evil all around us. Hannibal is not just a character, but he is the title. He is the setting. He is in existence from the beginning and active as a serial killer. And it takes Hannibal's presence as a natural state of the world we live in. We don't just realise it until we wake up, one morning, wake up one morning vomiting a human ear into the sink. <laughs> what does Hannibal do, though? He feeds. He consumes. At one point, there's this marvellous sequence that cuts between Hannibal canvassing potential recipes for a banquet he's planning and shots of him flicking through a Rolodex of professional contacts. It's wonderful in its restraint because we see none of the murdering and the reliance on the audience's imagination to fill in the gaps and become hungrily terrified when Hannibal's guests tuck into the feast. The horror here isn't the relishing in grisly details about a crime scene, but that Hannibal has made us all into eaters of death. All death is for him. The few other murders in the show that aren't actually committed by him are often either offerings to Hannibal for his appreciation or imitations in order to flatter him. We all worship at the altar of Hannibal, which is his design. But we're empty because he gives nothing back. Hannibal, the show, wants us to engage in our behaviour, to accept some part of ourselves that we don't really want to know. Like Six Feet Under before, this wants us to realise that we love being entertained by death, but we don't really want to consider the reality of it. So TV ultimately is a psychological pursuit. If we're sleeping and dreaming when we go see a film in a darkened cinema, TV is where we poke and prod at our conscious self underneath the lights from the kitchen and with the necessary interruptions of our actual lives. Hannibal is an emotionally draining story because it doesn't conform to narrative expectations. The truth is not out there. We know now the truth is in here, inside of us. TV is increasingly a participatory experience of us, the audience, explaining why we live the way we do. At the end of The Sopranos, David Chase invited us to deal with two realities. Firstly, why did we actually support Tony Soprano, despite all the killing and cheating and lessons on how to dispose of bodies in New Jersey? And secondly, why do we now want him dead, just because the show was ending? It's almost as if we allow ourselves to cheer sociopathic behaviour on, so long as the show is renewed. But as soon as the finale occurs, we realise shamefully what we've been doing and try to distance ourselves once again from the naughty kid who kills all the people. The Sopranos asked us to look at ourselves through psychotherapy, as did the more short-lived in treatment, and to an extent so too does Hannibal. Lately, The Leftovers has been doing much of the same work. What is happening here is that none of these shows, Hannibal most of all, follow a typical TV narrative. At times they pretend to, but more often than not, they seek to usurp and subvert narrative expectations. They are talking to us. They want to make us see. Certainly with Hannibal, it's not about the logic of the story from scene to scene. There are plot holes and inconsistencies so large it doesn't even pay to worry about them. But more importantly, it's about the emotional narrative, the psychological connection between the images, between the characters and the murder tableaus, between the soundtrack and us. The show is asking us, what do we feel? It's asking us, what does this taste like? I'm not sure. Does everyone know what long pig is? Yeah, okay, good. Anyway. Um, so, as mentioned, the horror in these two scenes isn't what we've come to expect. 
In this final scene there, Brian Fuller takes the references a step further by using Mahler's Fifth Symphony, made famous in Visconti's Death in Venice adaptation, which has as strong a thematic connection to the show as anything else previously mentioned. There, as in here, the protagonist fails to acknowledge his impending doom until it's too late, until he embraces it wholly. Will Graham is our guide, as our guide, takes his place as one who consumes death. A god, says Hannibal. He recognises who he is in order to defeat the monster. And this is what we need to do in the show's world. We are the gods of television. We consume the lives that are served up to us. Now we are all become death destroyer of television. In firstly recognising horror in season one of Hannibal to accepting it in season two, the upcoming season may bring us towards actually having a victory over it. The question is, can we actually have serialised death on TV after Hannibal? It seems unpalatable. <coughs> Hannibal is horror's becoming, and this is us becoming horror. And if we can accept this, then there's at least some hope. Thanks, Craig. I wanted to say that <laughs> there was so much to digest, but I feel like it's just going <laughs> to keep coming all night. I apologise in advance for all these puns. What is long pig? Uh, it, it's human meat made to look like pork. Mm. Yeah. Nudge, nudge, wink, wink. Yeah. So you showed us some quite like subtle scenes, mm. obviously conversation between the two. If you were going to choose a scene or just off the top of your head that encapsulated the horror genre in this show, what would you... In terms of what the show's doing with horror or what typically traditionally is horror? I reckon typically traditionally is uh, horror. I mean, probably the scene where Beverly's going into Hannibal's basement. Mm -hmm. um, I know that freaked the hell out of you. Um, the flesh. It's, I mean, it is terrifying. Yeah. And it does, and, and yet there's nothing that happens. We don't see what she sees. She goes down in the basement, it's all dread. Um, probably the entire episode, I forget which one it is, where there's the, the sort of man who becomes a monster. That is then in the final scenes pursuing Will. Um, you know, that's, that almost runs as a perfect sort of monster story in its own, in terms of the traditional view of what horror is. Um, Absolutely. What about you guys? What scenes have scared you the most? Well, it's, it's that one for me because um, Craig and I actually do have a habit of texting each other <laughs> um, when we watch Hannibal. Sean and I have to watch it together. Yeah. We get to see so we, we don't really kind of ever really sit in the same room because he's an internet friend and who wants to see an internet friend in real life? No. Um, this is an exception. But we will text each other. And for that, that scene when Beverly goes down into the basement, he has like this full screen of me going, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. Uh, yeah, and I was traumatised at the end of it, but you know, yeah. It was I think it's Every single episode all the time. <laughs> I think it was particularly the shooting of Hobbs just because of the amount of blood yeah. that came out. That right. was like... That just, I was hoping that you were going to say that you've cut all the episodes into like just dinner and psychology. <laughs> <laughs> and you're like, what horror? I don't even know. The censored version. Is yeah. It's it. an amazing series of dinner parties. <laughs> I can't believe you got through the finale then. No, yeah. Oh, God. Oh, that was terrifying. God. All right, we'll move on to me. So this is awkward. I'm not going to reintroduce myself because Sean already did and it seems pointless, so I'm just going to get stuck into it. Um, when it comes to Hannibal, there are numerous avenues through which one can academically evaluate the text. We could look at its conspicuous commentary on our fascination with food porn or how its highly stylized visuals and manipulative score emphasizes a character's cultural standing or the homoerotic undertones that are rapidly becoming overtones. 
which we're all very happy about. Or, of course, why there's rampant fan culture in Korea. Has everyone seen that promo? <gasps> I, I almost I, included it. I, you should have. If you haven't seen it, go home and YouTube Korean Hannibal promo, and it's very fun. Hannibal! Okay. Um, but anyway, scrap all of what I just said, because what we're here really to talk about is the dogs. <laughs> <laughs> Dogs are a common televisual trope, one that indicates a viewer's, uh, to a viewer a character's worth and moral standing. For instance, the popular notion of shooting the dog once meant that a character could commit an act that was morally ambiguous but dictated by circumstance. The line shooting the dog was originally named after the tragic ending in Old Yeller, where the titular dog was put out of his rabid misery. Meanwhile, to kick the dog is when a character acts so maliciously and amorally that we know they're going to do something bad for baddie's sake, so they are the baddie. Often, and somewhat confusedly now, kicking the dog takes the form of someone blatantly and malevolently shooting the dog so it can cause confusion between the two terms. What's not confusing, however, is that week after week, and in Hannibal's case, week after week after week after week after week, we can watch humans kill, maim and eat other humans, but the thought of something happening to the innocent little fuzzball with floppy ears and doe eyes, tail a wag and breaks our collective heart. Does that mean there's something wrong with us? I'm going to say no. And not because I don't love humans, but because I love dogs. Although I've never owned one. From the ages of 5 through 12, with every birthday candle I extinguished, every shooting star I witnessed, every list I wrote to Santa, I wished for one thing, a puppy. But to this day, I have a puppy-shaped hole in my heart. And a hardened hangover from a petless childhood that sees me struggle to accept loving commitment. <laughs> if my parents trained me in anything, by not permitting me a pet, it's no doubt my abilities to avoid affection at all costs are, <laughs> are what they created. They may have stopped me from getting a pup, but they can't stop me from being inherently wary of human friends, and because of that, to this day, it's actually in dog I trust. Some people just don't get that, my parents were those people, but some people do get that, like Will Graham people, of which I am one, like the creators of Hannibal and obviously Will Graham himself. It's through TV, like Hannibal, the internet, and gigs puppy-sitting my friend's dogs like this little idiot. <laughs> this is Libets, everyone. Um, that I survive as a dog lover, but not a dog owner. But let's take a closer look in the beloved dogs of, the beloved dogs of Hannibal, shall we? A few of my friends claim that on the day that their current career ends, they'll finally start their dream job as a dog groomer. As we've seen, if Will Graham said that, we'd have actual cause to believe him. For Will Graham loves dogs, having taken in what he calls a family of strays, seven dogs in total, only two of which we actually know by name. The hella adorable and seasonably dependable Winston, who we just met in that clip in the first episode, and Buster, who at this point is my personal favourite because little Buddy knows exactly what he's doing. Oh, there's Winston. There's Buster. He knows what he's doing. Going straight for Will's crotch. <laughs> Good boy. But then there's also this guy. Hey, mate. And then there's this guy, <laughs> and then this guy, oh, and then little underbite guy, oh no, that guy, then underbite guy, come on, oh, yeah, should be called wonderbite guy, <laughs> and then little shaky, oh, buddy. Um, in exciting news for all you fanables here tonight with your Twitters and your Instagrams, we are, you will likely already know, but you have the chance to name these nameless critters. Uh, apparently at a recent Comic-Con panel, Brian Fuller himself said that fans can name the rest of the dogs in season three because Hannibal fans love dogs and the breakout star 
applesauce <laughs> was named after a fan suggestion. Now, applesauce has gone on to usurp Winston as the most popular dog, even though Winston does have 12.3 thousand followers on Twitter, because applesauce is the creator of memes. So yeah, applesauce went crazy all over the internet. There were so many memes, so everyone will have seen this one. Who's this? It's the new dog, blah, blah. Also, applesauce, whose is she? Will's like, she's actually mine. Also, applesauce really is the best name. Um, while we're on the naming thing, I think we should all petition to call one of the dogs in the show Judith Light. If anyone watches Broad City, they'll appreciate that reference. So if everyone could just get on the social medias and make that happen, that would be great. But I digress. Regardless of this fun photo and sweet, sweet naming right capabilities that we have, each of these dogs, applesauce included, are more than just fanable pawns. Pawns as in chess, not the stuff that Amy's going to talk about later. <laughs> what I'm saying is that these dogs aren't just for a fan's naming Christmas, they give Will life because he really loves dogs. <laughs> because as I mentioned before, dogs are a signifier of deep empathy and sympathy for humans. Hannibal, as you may have caught on, is a deeply symbolic show in not so subtle ways at times, and these pooches are no less symbolic. The most obvious way that these rescue pups are utilized here is to give Will Graham the requisite adorability and reliability quotient that a character with the right mix of personality disorders and an inability to maintain eye contact, but empathizes directly with heinous murderers rather than regular Joes would otherwise elicit. It also helps that Hugh Dancy's really cute himself. <laughs> the dogs are often used in an endearingly flirtatious engagement tool between Alana and Will. Um, and it's a good one at that because, let's be honest, who of us does not want to cozy up in front of the space heater with Will? <laughs> How good is that as a line? You don't need protective custody to cozy up with me and my dogs. Almost as good as, did you just smell me? <laughs> <laughs> But seriously though, these dogs are a reliable source of love and adoration in an otherwise chaotic and morbidly unstable world. Unstable ethically, morally, mentally and physically. As Alana emphasises, unlike the corrupt and untrustworthy humans that embody the world of Hannibal, dogs keep promises humans can't. These dogs are Will's adopted family. His pack of strays looking for a home just like him and consequently make his domestic world virtuous by their very innumerable existence. Will is one of them and at one with them. It's no surprise that Will is described as Jack's trained hound halfway through the series. More than anything, Will's dogs serve as a definitive moral compass because while everyone else in the show is either under suspicion or under doubt or under doubtful suspicion, the dogs remain trustworthy sources of good. This is not unusual for television. Dogs are often utilised as narrative and symbolic tools because TV, more than any art form, is built on recycled tropes and dependable conventions. The patterns are clear once you start looking for them. While Hannibal is what we would call a hybrid genre piece, part horror, part fucked up version of My Kitchen Rules, part procedural <laughs> murder mystery, the dogs are still present. They, dogs are also staples in family shows and soaps and sitcoms like Bouncer and Neighbours or Comet and Full House or, does anyone remember Bob Morrison? From, thank you. I could not find anyone else and it was painful for a little while there. Oh, really? That's great. Bob Morrison was a 1994 sitcom that I think ran for one season based in Australia where it kind of was like a look who's talking but with a dog explaining his family's life. Yeah. There's a clear reason no one really knows it. But beyond that, detective and procedural shows or cop shows have a particular affinity with the dog sidekick and they often give dogs spotlight and agency within their narrative structure, like they do in Hannibal. Like they do in Hannibal, TV's TV dogs across this genre work to create the likeable light on anti-heroes, 
They're often dependable DX machina and with their sensitive noses, and sometimes they even figure as mystery-solving characters themselves. Think here's Scooby-Doo or Columbo's Basset Hound and back up in Veronica Mars. Eventually, a particularly, actually, a particularly fitting example of the collision between procedural programs and dogs and a slight significant indication of our general fascination with dogs as characters can be found in the following clip that defies description but proves my point. Um, so, unlike Puchinski was for us just then, the dogs in Hannibal aren't for lols or as just as pseudo-detective sidekicks. Due to the compassion that Winston, Applesauce, Buster, Underbite, Shaky Guy and all the others evolving, evoking viewers and the horror inclinations of Hannibal, the show goes way beyond suggesting that someone has kicked or even shot the dog, using Will's canine companions to dive into some seriously dark and suspenseful territory. Um, in the same way that uh, an episode, episode four in season one with the shooting mums, Molly Shannon stuff, focused on procedural crime murders around families and emphasised the dog's status as Will's relatable and reliable kin, this particular episode in season two is all about animals and beasts and the monster, as you were saying before. As that clip demonstrates, it's an episode that highlights the division and tensions between the domestic trained animals and the wild, untamed beast, hence reflecting the attempts made by Jack and Hannibal to mould Will's character and instincts up to polar ends. But, <laughs> oh, he's coming from us. <laughs> by having a bestial huntsman enter into Will's domestic sphere and literally shatter his world and attack one of his pack, Will's hackles are, up, are raised, and accordingly, he protects his pack and kills the predator. There's a clear reason Will lives in Wolf Trap, Virginia, and this episode presents the most blatant symbolic reasoning for this, thus establishing a whole different meaning for psychogeography. Will's house is a safe space that when invaded and when these tame, lost, now found dogs are damaged, his life and worldview and well-being is completely contaminated and shit gets really bad. Which leads me to my final clip, and I'm sorry to make you watch this again. Could we please have the last clip? Sorry, SDM. <laughs> <laughs> This gruesome manipulation of our feelings not only invades Will's domestic sphere and corrupts his dogs, but also elevates the cannibal horror element of the show to the realm of the incomprehensible and perhaps irreparable. Will can vomit up an ear and we can deal. Hannibal can nibble on human corpse crudite and we'll want more. But the moment a dog and those floppy-eared figures of incomparable good act as our moral compass and sense of reason, that is not Alana, although she tries to be, or at Hannibal's true innocent character, shut your face Abigail, you will never be that, it's the dogs. The moment they are forced to eat a human face, we totally freak out. Yes, it could have something to do with the fact that he is carving up his own face, but it's also clearly to do with the use of those fur balls. Honestly, this could be the most sadistic of all the Hannibal emo manipulation sequences to date, one that curdles my stomach more than any other. That said, we've still got a season to go. So accordingly, I must implore the powers that be, won't someone think of the dogs? It won't be them, <laughs> but of course it will be Will Graham. Thank you. Um, so now it's kind of awkward because we can... Do, do you want to talk about the dogs or STM, do you just want to present? Which one's your favourite dog? Which one's my favourite dog? Well, it was Buster, but now... I, it, do we know if Buster's still kicking? Yeah, he was fine. I think after that scene, he, they showed him getting up. Yeah, okay. but that was... If Chilton can survive, Buster can survive. <laughs> good point. You make Anyone a good point. Anyone lives in this show. Yeah. yeah, I don't know. I'm going to wait until we find out what the other names are because I'm going to gun for whichever one Judas Light is by the end of next season. <laughs> um, I'm going to introduce Sam now. Sam Twyford-Moore is the director of the Emerging Writers Festival, which is running again this year from the 26th of May to the 5th of June and the founding host of the Rereaders podcast. 
He's also a writer and editor who has been published in Mianjin, The Lifted Brow, The Guardian, The, Australia, the, Los, the Australian, The Los Angeles Review of Books, and loads of other places. Please welcome Sam. <laughs> oh, you need the clicky. Uh, thanks. So I thought I was going to be the weird sorbet between meals, but evidently not. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, so when talking about NBC's Hannibal, you're very clearly talking about style all the time. The show's substance seemingly is style, uh, and I'm going to ruin the most stylish show of all time with the ugliest uh, PowerPoint ever. <laughs> uh, and so when I started thinking about style and, and the show, I was really thinking about Will Graham and his wonderful collection of plaid shirts, uh, <laughs> which you know, I, I felt was the great stylistic invention of the show. Um, so when the f uh, show first came out in 2013, um, a group of us were sort of becoming obsessed with it and, and the clear obsession became this wardrobe as the focus of attention. Um, and so, you know, Will Graham is the ultimate style icon. It's a very plain, muted wardrobe, um, it clearly has a great deal of beautiful plaid and it's kind of got this Quaker philosophy behind it, you know, this, this dressing very plainly. Um, but like any Quaker philosophy, there may not be much to say about it because you have to be pretty quiet in Quaker religion. <laughs> and so if you want to talk about style on the show, what you really need to talk about is the food. Um, so uh, this is from my hot guys chopping up meat on Tumblr. <laughs> uh, the food is arguably the great stylistic invention on Hannibal and where it really departs from the film adaptations. And it's also what sets, apart, um, what sets it apart as essentially being a prequel to these films um, because this is Hannibal's great freedom in his pre-cell lockdown phase. Uh, and of course, it brought him all his notoriety, his cooking. So this is the great expanding universe of the liver, fava, beans and Chianti uh, that uh, Anthony Hopkins kind of drawled. Uh, and, you know, I think when he said those infamous lines, we weren't really ever thinking that this world of food would ever be expanded uh, or kind of, you know, uh, really, really pushed in the way that it is in Hannibal. And so what I really want to get to is who is responsible for this culinary expansion? Uh, well, a lot of people credit this guy, uh, who is Jose hey. Andres. <laughs> hey, hey, it's me. I did uh, <laughs> Who's the James Beard award-winning LA-based chef who was credited with bringing tapas to America. Um, and so when the f show first started, he was brought on as a food consultant. Uh, he makes fancy things like this, a stack of potato chips. <laughs> anyway, Jose Andres basically works with Brian Fuller on the scripts. Uh, they consult, they have a bit of a chat, uh, and then they kind of come up with the menu. Um, but I completely discredit Jose Andres. I think he's got, you know, basically nothing to do with the show because the total hero of the show for me is this woman, Janice Poon, uh, who is the food stylist. She's a writer, painter, and florist, and just all around generally a fantastic human being. She's the show's food stylist, and she pulls the whole thing off with a bare-bones staff of two, uh, which is just incredible if, you've, if you're kind of familiar with the food. Um, she also seems to kind of hate chefs too, which is great. In an interview with Munchies, Justine Poon was asked what the difference between a chef and a food stylist was, and she replied, can I get snarky here? Well, I don't mean to be rude, but for God's sake, a chef used to be a vaunted position where you had to claw your way to the top, but now you just uh, need a prison tattoo to qualify. Um, so I think she's subtly taking down Jose there, which is great. Um, <laughs> 
Uh, she went on to say, don't quote me on that, but clearly they did. <laughs> anyway, uh, this is Justine's website, uh, which is the great fan website of uh, Hannibal. It's called Feeding Hannibal. Um, it isn't a great example of style, which isn't good for this talk. It is, in fact, a very ugly blog spot, but that's totally cool. Um, it's part working diary, part recipe collection, but it's also kind of the most amazing behind-the-scenes inventory for the show. Uh, it's also a super cool craft blog. Um, so the great creative challenge of Hannibal... I skipped a bit too early. The great creative challenge of Hannibal is finding substitutes for human meat. Uh, this is a picture of Jenny's Poon holding a veal shank next to her leg to see if it is a fitting substitute. Um, she eventually consulted her niece, who's a physiotherapist, to get the proper dimensions for the thigh bone. Um, she's done amazing things. She's, she's replaced... A, a lot of the food on the show isn't actually meat. It's kind of like um, the great lungs that Hannibal cuts up. It was actually bread that was uh, dyed. Um, that great scene where he's sort of peeling a uh, black grape. Uh, no one could find black grapes, so she ended up uh, uh, getting normal grapes and spending all night dining it, uh, dyeing it. She's kind of just this sort of powerhouse in a lot of ways. Um, anyway, she tackles really important questions like how do you avoid using real brains and testicles in an on-screen Sacramento omelette? Uh, and how do you make a roast look like it's been growing mouldy for weeks? Um, so you the great thing... Point that. Yeah. Sure. So the great thing about um, about this website is she also shares these really beautiful uh, hand-drawn designs of the foodscapes, and kind of you can find the recipes on there. You can find these like really uh, intimate kind of uh, things, and then these these beautiful behind-the-scenes kind of um, kind of descriptions of, of the scenes and the working process as well. Um, there's this one, which is actually a spoiler for season three, because that's something that gets cooked on season three, uh, and apparently it's Bedelia's uh, dinner, uh, and it's a giant arm that's got feather on it, and it's made out of ham, so that's cool. <laughs> um, anyway, the other great thing about Feeding Hannibal is she gets her fans uh, to send in uh, their kind of, their versions of her food, which is really cool. Um, so this is her version of, of that, uh, that omelette that I just mentioned. Uh, and then this is a fan's version, which is pretty impressive. That's a really impressive um, kind of, you know, evocation of, of the early one. Uh, but then you get these, uh, which, <laughs> which kind of looks something like, like a kind of entry from cooksuck.com. Uh, and then you get these kind of weird ones where, I don't know if you can see that exactly. That's, that's the amazing, this is an amazing recreation of the tongue uh, meal from Hannibal, but someone's done it in a miniature where they've actually created it out of clay and then hand-painted it uh, because Hannibal's are weird, <laughs> I guess. Um, so, yeah, I mean, a lot of work goes into this. Um, unfortunately, due to the long filming times and, and, and Mads and, uh, and our dear Hugh Dancy kind of chewing on this food for a really long time, a lot of the stuff ends up in the bin, which is kind of terrible. Uh, and just my last little Jose Andres takedown. Apparently, this guy's on the advisory board for LA Kitchen, which is a social enterprise in Los Angeles, which works to reduce food waste uh, and provide job training. And clearly not. So, <laughs> Good work, uh, Yeah. But uh, the, the Hannibal cookbook comes out in 2016, and I'm kind of looking forward more to that oh. than season three. So that's I, me. I was going to ask... Oh. I was going to ask, so there's recipes on that 
website. Yeah, there's have recipes. You I really well. Anything? My plan for tonight was actually to cook something and take photos, but I didn't want to embarrass myself with my cook side <laughs> thing. But also, I just don't I have the time. I hope it was time. actually that. Like the great chicken with the bacon on yeah, top of it. Gray milk. And you're like, mm. I think the great fiction of the t this uh, this whole show is like, how does this psychiatrist find time to put these exquisite meals together? I think that's the, that's the ultimate fiction of Hannibal. Yeah, <laughs> not the killing and the making people. No, not people. the killing, no. not, not any of that stuff. No. No, uh, I'm looking forward to eating your cannibal, Hannibal-inspired meals as long as it's yeah. not human-based. I'll, I'll make you that fish head cake. In a bin? Yeah, in a bin. I'll serve it in a bin. <laughs> yes! That's awesome. Thanks, STM. Um, now on to Amy. Amy Gray is a Melbourne-based writer interested in feminism, popular and digital culture, Satan and parenting. <laughs> Her work is a <laughs> Her work has appeared in The Age, Sydney Morning Herald, BBC, ABC and others. She's also an occasional broadcaster on the ABC, Radio Adelaide and 2UE. She is currently working on her first fiction title and recently gave an address titled Reclaiming Cyberspace, How the Internet Has Become the New Battleground in the Fight for Equality for International Women's Day. Please welcome Amy. Spell <laughs> the devil you know, darling. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks so much, Captain Beth. Um, anywho, um, I just, I'm just going to give a content warning. Everyone else has been very erudite, they've been very intellectual, and I'm a trash bag. And I'm also operating on very, very little sleep because I've just um, come back home from a long time away. Um, I do have like a presentation of pretty pictures and gifts. They're not really ordered. Um, I'm, I don't, they're not even relevant. I'm just going to like kind of click basically, but enjoy the pretty pictures. Um, and I'm probably just going to swear a whole bunch too, and we've got one hell of a closer ready for you. But um, I'm here to talk about you and us, the fans, because it's no, it's no longer enough to be a fan when it comes to popular culture. You know, fans are pretty much dilettantes who play nice with weekly TV schedules and they don't binge on a card-based kind of bacchanalia of, you know, watching anything on HBO. You know, fans sprang from the word fanatic, but we're more than fanatic these days. Um, and that's because of the internet. Um, fans are kind of really kind of lo-fi and passive, and they await TV schedules, like Craig does. Craig is very, very polite about his um, entertainment, unlike me. Um, they await delivery of stories, often legally. Um, and it's a one-way uh, communication from studios where they treat the viewers as consumers, who they just sort of deliver the message to, and then they walk away and they go on with their next one. It's, you know, it's not a... Viewers aren't a participants in the environment, but, you know, that created by the showrunners. But the internet has really changed that. Um, uh, <laughs> 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 so we can find shows not aired on local TV or we can just download them at a time that suits us from single episodes to complete seasons, you know, behaviour that's actually endorsed by places like um, Netflix who will release like an entire season of House of Cards or Orange is the New Black and one binge drop. And I'm a huge fan of this because nothing says I enjoy your creative endeavours, like lying in a pool of your own crapulence, chain smoking, <laughs> and wondering if I could start cosplaying as Claire Underwood from House of Cards. <laughs> but I digress. Um, more importantly, the internet has actually um, allowed us to completely transform the act and art of fandom. So gone is that, you know, that passive mode of receiving that we were talking about. 
now viewers are actually able to talk with creators, talk with other fans, and then build worlds that directly reference the show and what they want to happen. So, you know, I could, whenever Craig over here sort of sends me a message, I will often send him this as a reply. <laughs> or, you know, you could just use it to explain how you feel about TV. <laughs> so this is why we have Fanables. This is their design. And so when Hannibal aired, they went to the one platform that actually truly nurtures the obsessive. <laughs> <laughs> they went to Tumblr, which is something poetic and vaguely creepy. Um, and, you know, Tumblr was already home to a bunch of people already tweaking over shows like Supernatural, Doctor Who and Sherlock, like they had a cheap bunch of pingers. Tumblr actually... But Tumblr actually lost their shit when... Um, Hannibal came about because it actually brought in a lot of people not traditionally associated with online fandom, but it actually brought in people who found new ways to amp it up to an unprecedented level, like, you know, turning a corpse into a musical instrument level. So, but whoever it is at the NBC understands that... <laughs> that's my favourite, by the way. Um, but whoever it is I read NBC really seems to understand that and they've got a really amazing Tumblr account and they're in on the joke. They're in on the joke. They make fun of Mads Mikkelsen all the time. <laughs> they, you should actually heartily check it out. Uh, but Tumblr is actually really instrumental to the show's success and it's unprecedented for its enthusiastic leap into dark humour and the ridiculousness of fandom. But that interaction between um, creators and, um, <laughs> and fans is actually mutually beneficial. So the fans get closer access to the creators and so they feel more involved, they feel more invested, they feel more attached. And for the creators, like at one point, it looked like the show might have been canned because it was such a, it is a relatively low rating show. But then they started the Eat the Rude campaign. That was the fans. The fans led their own campaign called Eat the Root and they bombarded everyone to make sure it was signed. And it was one of the first series that was actually re-signed for that year, which was like really quite strange. That didn't really happen all that often. But Fanables are obsessed with a couple of things. <laughs> they're obsessed with Will's obsession with dogs, as been, has been covered. And they're creating new subtitles to show how they interpret scenes or want them to turn out. Um, <laughs> and there's also the ongoing status of the murder family, which contains the endlessly eye-bugging uh, Abigail, but also murder husbands Hannibal and Will. Um, this is this is actually this is. I just wanted to include this one just because it shows how Tumblr has really been taken aback by um, the Fanables. It's like. Dude, what? We thought shit was bad when Sherlock came about. No. <laughs> um, but anyway, so let's have a look at how um, the Fanables use, you know, online communication and online kind of art forms to um, express themselves. And I'm not going to mention the dogs too much, even though it, I really could have just done that because it's amazing. But we should talk about GIFs. Um, oh, this one's a heartbreaking one. GIF. God damn it. <laughs> Um, it's not that Fanables created fan gifts, they've just been able to have complete conversations in them. And awesome. Um, gifts are popular because, you know, as you know, serial fan offender Tumblr, they've really popularised that ability to quickly upload them and then use it as a reaction. So there's, also, there's that really interesting connection between humans and technology at play here. So technology is advanced enough so that we now watch TV on our computers, so we have that expectation of 
doing TV-related expression on our computers, but also our human need to share and experiment with communication has re you know, resulted in the popularity of GIFs and also in a number, uh, a number of ways of where we um, just sort of want to repeat TV shows to one another. It's like, you know, with the Simpsons quotes. You used to have a Simpsons quote for every aspect of life. Now we use reaction GIFs. So, you know, if, oh, sorry, guys. Oh, but look, sorry. hugs. <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> so, anyway, Fanables use GIFs as part of the Simpson effect as a response to life, but also to illustrate how they interact with that show. So, you know, Will is an annoying human catastrophe. Everyone wants to kill Abigail, or maybe that's just me. Um, <laughs> apparently, I'm alone on Freddie Lowndes Appreciation Island. Come on. I'm not. Um, and there's also that dis desperate urge, like, just look here, um, to distance Hannibal from his evil presence as an actual serial killer, that fact that we always, even though it's a show built on a guy who you know, often murders someone that week or compels someone else to murder them, um, we still have this human reaction to minimise that evil, to make him cute, make him kawaii, make him somewhat lovable in some way. So this uh, popular, another popular area is this you know, uh, captioned dialogue. Oh, so you used that, but I had to include it. Um, so, but the images that are taken from the... Sh <laughs> it was good. Um, <laughs> that was actually recommended by whoever it is that mans the... Um, uh, oh, hello, there you are. Who uh, looks after the Acme um, uh, Twitter account and is a dead set freaking legend. And I've just been talking with them in GIFs for the past couple of weeks. Um, but so... <laughs> <laughs> this is a really good example of the caption dialogue effect that people use when they're kind of playing around with Hannibal stuff. And they take images from the show, but then they use, another, they adapt an existing form to, you know, play around with, and that's Doge. So looking, Do you know, using Doge language. So we all remember Doge, so scared, very wow, all that sort of thing. They use the same Comic Sans font and they rely on either stripped down, oh my god, um, <laughs> stripped down, simplified speech, and internet abbreviations. And they also scatter, notice how they scatter the dialogue um, around. Um, <laughs> and it's not as minimal as Doge, but it's, you know, it uses you know, similar word patterns and it's close. But the Doging of Hannibal ties perfectly into fandom because it's an adaptive use of that. Um, Oh my God! Um, communication and entertainment, and that allows you to modify the canon of the series to whatever you want it to be. See, look, greedy much? I did that for you, Will. Um, and it's normally like in jokes about you know how um, <laughs> Will wants dogs. <laughs> but so it's also a response to the horror. Oh, this is really sweet. It's like Princess Minoke kind of mash up with Hannibal. Deviant art was like um, a little bit slow to the whole Hannibal fan genre, but they've really kicked it up a notch. Um, <laughs> but so this is also a response to the horror of the series, the serial killer with the scary name. <laughs> he gets the nickname of Hanny, and it's not necessarily an attempt to dilute the horror, but it's a gag, it's that awkward laugh in the face of something that's actually quite shocking. Um, 
And it's almost, it, I don't know if you notice, we'll, we'll, so we'll say, oh, this is actually a story. Okay, this is a story told in a couple of um, JPEG sets. So Hannibal's looking at this, he's like, wow, that is proud, so beauty. And then he starts talking up the murderer. And it's like they're just flirting with one another. It's also definitely the work of someone with a cute butt. <laughs> But, you know, it's that, it's, that awkward, it's that awkward kind of laugh you do when you see something shocking happening. You know, Will is a human catastrophe and you don't know if he's actually going to fall into complete crapulence or if he's going to be the noble kind of martyred hunter that he's supposed to be. And Hannibal is Hannibal. But, um, but they're so crazy for each other. You know, they've, they've got hearty eyes. You know, they're butt-ogling over each other when Hanny's not, you know, busy sniffing people. <laughs> Um, and yeah, and so this is this is the other favourite. I'll just go through that. It's just oh it's God. just amazing, though. <laughs> it's just so beautiful. Um, but so you'll also note that you know it's just they use that simplified speech. They you know they're tying into the accepted narratives that they have. This is the murder family. It's like you know Will is calling himself Daddy, but. Um, but we should explore that other obsession, <laughs> which is the sexy times. Because unlike Moffat over at Sherlock, it's a pastime wholly celebrated by the show's creators and, and the fans and the actors. Hannibal and Will have massive murder bonus for each other because <laughs> they're murder husbands. And it's a sexy show. Whenever Hanny likes a person, the way he kills them is very sexual, it's very sensual, it's very intimate, unless he thinks they're food then it's just, you know, that's bad. But the love of writing, there's this love of writing explicit homoerotic tales that existed long before Hannibal, but the Fannibals have taken to it with orgiastic kind of butt cheek squelching glee. So, and this is what we call slash fiction. So slash being, you know, kind of like M slash M, so it's meant to be like male, you know, male on male erotic fan fiction. And it, the question is so often kind of, it's often assumed that it's an examination of the queer community. And it's great from the fact that it kind of rejects an automatic um, assumption that everyone in the world is heterosexual. However, it's not really something that is um, a product of and fully supported by the queer community. It's actually from everything that people have been um, doing. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> Oh, that was that was that one. Yeah, um, I'll just go back. We just might just we'll just go there. We'll just leave it there for a while. I'm going to end on that one just because I'm going to read your special story. Um, but a lot of people actually think of slash fic or the homoerotic stories as a bit of a feminist frustration because a lot of the times, a lot of the genres or shows that people have written slash fic about have actually been very um, exclusive of, or excluding of women. And, um, and women's stories. And um, it's something that women have actually done. It's always written by women, almost exclusively written by women, and it's written by women around the world. So, say, for example, over in China, they're nuts about Sherlock, like absolutely nuts. And, um, 
Actually, there was a really great thing in the LA Review of Books where they were talking about how much trouble it is where they have to actually work really hard for the censors to actually censor and translate the show as quickly as possible because people are just going cray for it. But they don't call, um, over in, you know, in Western audiences, they'll call the kind of pairing of Sherlock and John, John Locke. But over in, um, over in China, they actually refer to them as curly foo and peanuts. <laughs> And, um, and, and they write this masses of erotic fan fiction about curly foo and peanuts, even though they're actually at risk of imprisonment for doing such a thing because it's considered immoral. But um, Slashfic ties into something that's called um, yaoi, which is, um, or boy love, which is this Japanese genre. Um, and they're created by female authors, once again, for female audiences and they're widely, you know, it's a widespread genre, which, you know, doesn't really say much about Japan. You can get, um, you know, tentacle porn at your local train station very, very easily. But um, it's one of those really, really easily available subgenres, very accepted subgenre sub um, that people read. And it's about boys loving each other. There's no women in it. It's just two guys getting it on getting down, falling in love. And I asked my, I actually asked one of my favourite slash authors about why she writes really explicit stuff. And, um, and she sort of said, well, it's because it's something I'll never be able to feel. I'll never have a penis and I'll never be able to experience what it's like to use a penis or for someone else to experience my penis. So that's why I write about it. And it's the same for a lot of... Um, other people, there's this kind of voyeuristic kind of aspect to it, you know, and that seems to be the thing. It's not about wanting to fuck any of the characters. I mean, yes, we all love Mads Mikkelsen. Yes, we all love Hugh Dancy, but it's not about wanting to, reading Slash or writing Slash isn't about wanting to fuck them. It's a voyeuristic kind of thing. It's wanting to see how far they can push it. Um, but it's also like this safe space for women to express themselves. Fandom is traditionally incredibly um, accepting and you know, incredibly so with, um, with slash fiction. And um, it's also a response to that kind of alternate storyline to the show, the one most favoured you know, with Hannibal, where they have you know, the great big murder family and they have their, their daughter and they raise them and then they've got Bedelia as the exquisitely dressed haughty stepmother whose one true love has and always will be wine, but she has a bit on the side for pussy bow blouses. <laughs> but um, I wanted to close off with a bit of a slash fic story about Hannibal because why the hell not? And also I promised people that I would reference fisting at least once in this speech. So this is a story where Hannibal engages in some erotic action, some erotic therapy to help Will achieve empathy with the Minnesota Shrike. And it was written by someone called Talera. Now, I'm sorry, I'm not going to read this aloud just to make fun of them because, you know, full admission time. I love slash fiction. I absolutely adore it. I'm actually a particular fan of K-pop slash fiction. Um, and I've spent hours reading about these two K-pop stars who find time to fist each other whilst balancing their careers in boy bands and raising a rainbow family. And it's amazing. And, and if you just wanted to know where I'm up to with that particular story, I don't write it, I read it, I just have favourite authors. Um, it's really hard being 25 because that's like super old and so now all the other boy banders are actually like wailing on Taman at the moment because he's really old and they're going to kick him out of the band. But anyway, um, <laughs> shut up all of you. Okay, here's a story um, by uh, Talerum. His fingers are long, 
Sorry, here's an appropriate image for you. There we go. That's actually, there's many of these. I did not include everything I could find on the internet and I think you should be uh, happy about that. <laughs> His fingers are long and bony and feel like a cold metallic apple corer. Will cries and struggles because they hurt. But then his body opens up to them like Cassie Boyle's body opened to the impaling antlers. <laughs> See? Ties it together. <laughs> while uh, Will accepts the stretching, merciless fingers, and after a while, he wants more, needs more. For a feverish moment, Will wishes his body were mounted on the stag's head, pierced everywhere in a final entanglement. But he's begging in Dr. Lecter's bed, which he supposes must be as good. And it is, because when the fingers give way to the knuckles, Will understands. The pain is so unbearable, it is exquisite. And now, now it makes sense, the killings, Cassie, the kabuki killer, who takes for pleasure and revels in the taking, just as Will is doing right now. There are tears and sweat and blood, but Dr. Lecter is unflinching, and he feeds Will his whole fist to the wrist, pretty much as he would force chicken soup down the throat of a sick patient. I thought that was a strange <laughs> But my literary criticism career is not really all that time developed. Um, but, um, and there is nothing sexual in it, no. Just a hard, necessary lesson for Will to take. His semen is proof that he is finally understood. Dr. Lecter is not disgusted by it. He simply smiles. After all, the melted fat of a roasted goose is the best part of it. It's distilled quintessence. <laughs> <laughs> Microphone drop, boom. <laughs> that was very good. Thank you very much for all the lols and, I guess, um, enlightenment is the word. I, I live to give. Yeah. Um, well, you said you haven't written your own slash or fan fiction before. Is that something that you want to dabble in or you flirted with dabbling in? Um, or oh, are you lying to us? No, I have. <laughs> actually, I have seriously never written it before, but I was asked by Cosmo to write some for them. And, um, and I came up with all these, like, they said, oh, we want you to be really funny. And um, that we want, like, you know, erotic fan fiction based on TV shows. And so I gave them all these ideas, one of which was, you know, I wrote, I suggested, why don't we write erotic fan fiction about hoarders? Um, that reality <laughs> TV show where they find someone who hoards and they have to go clean it up. And I, I said, you know, we could have this whole subject story about love amongst the cat feces. And that, <laughs> that is not a Cosmo reader. Thing. <laughs> you didn't know that. And so they ended up getting me to write, um, they wanted me to write uh, Dracula erotic fan fiction. And, and so I did. I wrote them like about 2,000 words. Um, about Dracula and Mina Harker getting it on. But I got really annoyed and so I didn't want it to be traditional so I basically just had it as Mina Harker masturbating. Um, and, and then they, they realised that there was a thing called copyright and the lawyers didn't want anyone to do it so they all got spiked. So none of this has seen the light of day? No, none of it has seen the light of day. That's and actually, shame. your good friend um, Sam from uh, Lifted Brow, he said, oh, what are you doing with that article? Do you want to submit I was about to say, the hoarders one, we'll probably commission it. Let yeah, it no, I, I can totally write the hoarders one for you, loving a time of cat feces. Um, but um, yeah, he, want, he wanted to use it for the Lifted Brow and instead I gave him 5,000 words about my sex life, which you helped edit. So yes. that, was, that was a happy day for which everyone. It's a good read. Go on and buy the Lifted Brow. Um, yeah. 
Do you guys, are you participants in this fan culture? Not necessarily the slash and fan fiction, <laughs> but maybe the Tumblr and the lols? I, f I feel like the show kind of, it didn't necessitate any fan fiction because it completely lived into the fantasies. I mean, the that incredible... Well, know, all the fisting that goes on you. Well, no, <laughs> the, you know, like the incredible kind of blurring sex scene with, you know, Alana, Will and Hannibal. I mm. think that gave you everything you need, even though it was kind of like a, a weird sort of fantasy. I think, I think the show's creators are really understanding of that in, mm. in internet culture and then feed it back into the show in mm. a really kind of great way that pays service in a way. I mean, yeah, it's genius. Great. Yeah, no, I think they, I mean, they're completely aware of what they're doing. The, I mean, if you look at the second half of season two, they just abandoned some of the minor characters because they want to devote as much time to the major characters who are getting all the, the airplay amongst all the fans. And they know that if this was a different show, if this was uh, probably a, a normal HBO show, the critics would take them to task for not having proper narrative balance or anything like that, but they don't care. They're just like, no, you want more of this, we're going to give you more of this and you know, just run the full gamut with it. Yeah, definitely one for the fans. Speaking of, shall we open it up to the floor if anyone has any questions for any of the panel this evening? The panel bull. Terrible. <coughs> Did the fisting make you shy? <laughs> it's okay. My bad. <laughs> Gonna get everyone some chicken soup and it'll be fine. <laughs> Do you Tumblr then, Amy? I, I, lo I love Tumblr, but it actually really confuses me at the mm. same time. It's just the one, it's the one platform I actually haven't been able to, um, I, I sound like a real idiot when I say this, I haven't been able to bond with it. Um, I find that I'm very compelled to use Twitter every day, I'm very compelled to use Facebook and you know, everything and Instagram, etc. But Tumblr, no. I go in there once every month or so, no, Find the funny gifts and then... Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, look, it's, it's, it's great to use as a search tool, funnily enough, to, especially for, you know, fandom, because it's amazing for fandom. Um, but, and also Japanese dating sims. They actually really review Japanese dating sims on Tumblr as well, and I'm also a huge fan of that. Because I'm okay. really cultural and highbrow. <laughs> <laughs> I have a question, but when you say what's the most horrific bit in your list here, I was thinking the bit where... Where she can't see faces. And you never slept again. Yeah. Yeah. Can be quite scary. Yeah, obviously Shirley and I talked about screaming in the the first episode, but I think we screamed in most of them. But I have to, yeah, I have to watch Hannibal with him or someone else. Um, I did recently rewatch it and binge it, which was quite disturbing yeah. for my dreams. You said you can't. It's, I mean, yeah, just watch it. in the last couple of weeks, just going through things just to make sure, you know, I had what I needed. It, just watching them in such proximity to each other, it's so, because it, it just, the show runs on emotion. It doesn't mm. run on normal sort of, I just want to see what happens next. It's, I'm going to make you feel something and I'm going to just push you to absolute extremes. And all the characters, I mean, except for Hannibal, operate on these really heightened emotions. Um, but, yeah. How do you two watch 
incredible. I mean, it's 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 just immersive, isn't it? That like that soundtrack just like completely surrounds you. You know, the visuals are so black and rich that you just get completely kind of sucked into it. Mm -hmm. I mean, Craig, I was kind of interested with you know, like I mean, that scene in particular, uh, you know, really borrows a lot from horror tropes, and I I think it sounds like the third season is going to even you know pull out a lot of the horror stuff. Was that a, what you got out of it? The kind of yeah, I mean, it's. It's interesting because I think it, certainly in the, the first half of the first season it was very much, you know, kind of murder of the week. And, and it, but it just kind of kept pushing it a little bit. And then by the end of the first season it was like, no, no, we're telling a different story here than just what grisly thing happened, you know, near Wolf Track. Um, and then in the second season it, it kind of, it really just busted that open entirely. Um, there was that early couple of episodes with the, the human mosaic which was, one of the most hideous things I've ever seen. Oh, um, really? Yes, yes. But it, um, it, that, it wasn't even, like, there was no sort of narrative drive to find out who this guy was or to explain what he was doing. That was just purely a backdrop for what was actually going on, which was, you know, the story between Will and Hannibal. Um, it's, so, I don't know, it, it's going to be interesting to see where it goes in season three, I think. It, it seems like they're going to break it into sort of two sections with a big narrative jump, a big time jump between the first half and the second half. Um, and it looks like we're going to get up to some of the material in um, Red Dragon, which is going to be really interesting to see, considering that's been done a couple of times. Um, but, I, yeah, I mean, there it's really going to be embracing its origins a lot more. So to what extent, I guess, they rely on horror tradition or they keep pushing it forward, I don't know, but it, it's certainly going to be something new. Do you binge watch it or are you like... I binge watch everything. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I, I, feel, I, I, I like, um, whenever I watch things, I like watching them all in a row and I always like having noise on when I'm working, <laughs> so that means I often binge watch you know, TV episodes. I can't, and I love how Netflix actually caters to that. That's the new sort of becoming the new expectation when it comes to, you know, watching TV shows. I don't know. When they flash up and slightly shame you with, do you want to continue? It's like, of course I want to continue. I'm in the middle of an episode. I feel more shame about that. I feel more shame about actually spending an entire day watching Z Nation or, and I watch, I watch really bad TV shows. My, my latest thing at the moment is finding tattoo reality TV shows. So good. Um, and you're just mainlining those. And it is because, you know, you say mainline because it's very addictive. It's very compulsive. Absolutely. I, no squeams. Oh, we have one. Um, before when you're talking in the first talk about all these films and then it hits the point of 1990 with um, Silence of the Lambs, is that, you kind of ended it there, but what's the gap between there and then this start of kind of horror in television? Like this new breed of horror, because it's like, yeah. at that same point in time is kind of when all the speculative realists came out and started re-bringing horror, but from a Lovecraftian mm. kind of idea and putting into our kind of contemporary consciousness, but then in a philosophical way as well. And then goes forward further and then, you know, True Detective being based on Eugene Thacker's book and then this whole nihilist chic thing, but I was wondering what that gap between, if you see a gap, like where they kind of finished on that thing that we look back now as a bit kitschy, I guess, to now this contemporary extreme horror and why we're so okay with it. 
Um, well, I, get, I mean, the, the gap for me, it's not necessarily a gap. I was more trying to uh, tie a connection in terms of what the legacy of Silence of the Lambs was, which was more seen in television than in actual horror films. I, I, don't, I mean, there was a little bit, um, but it certainly... I mean, as I mentioned, there are some good moments in horror, but nothing wholly new in terms of what I saw with Hannibal. Um, and so now that we're getting things like The Walking Dead, which certainly for the first few seasons was doing some wonderful things with horror, I think it's recycling itself a lot now, um, and American Horror Story, um, and also with this, it's, um, I think it, it, it's realising that you can tell horror stories differently on TV. Um, and things were just becoming a little bit too samey in the film. Um, I mean, we've had some really good horror films in the last couple of years. Um, and certainly, like, with The Babadook coming out in Australia, it's been great. But they haven't been... They're more just doing what we used to do well, rather than let's just remake, you know, an old film and just ramp everything up um, and not do it on a cheap budget anymore. So... I think it's more just in terms of what television as a medium can do with horror. It's doing it in a far more interesting way. And, you know, which horror has been languishing in terms of having a lack of good new ideas for a while now. Mm -hmm. Hello. <laughs> um, in terms of audience participation, being able to impact the show and help um, mould it or create it and take it along, where do you see that taking... Um, the horror genre in general, or even narrative as it's delivered today? Does anybody else want to take this one? I think it very much depends on the showrunner, um, for example, um, because the showrunner has become the most important, the most noted, you know, that they are their own, very, like their own personal brand, which is a really contemptible term, and I'm sorry for using it. <laughs> but, um, but, you know, so people like going back to Stephen Moffat, he's He's exceptionally resistant um, to um, any fan participation, which is interesting because he started out as a massive super nerdling fan. He freaking loved it. He's brought in storylines that he used to talk about on message boards. So for some people, um, they're going to resist it and they're just going to be rude to the fans. Or you'll have people like Fuller and others who will actually really engage with them. And I think there is that kind of discursive thing that will happen where there'll be kind of in-jokes and nods to the fans that are happening um, within series arcs and, you know, and sometimes, you know, references. I've been really interested with um, a recent TV series based on Constantine, the, um, the Exorcist. And they are super, super um, open and accessible via social media to talk about the story and what's happening as it's going on with you know, fans. And I remember I was having a chat with one of the scriptwriters who was just there and they're looking for people to reference the script, to reference the show. And they're there because they know that A, people are going to reference their work and they're going to get feedback on it, which is interesting to some of them but also the more they can fully engage with the online fan community, the more they can use that as a metric of success in order to get publicity, in order to attract advertisers, in order to get more seasons and sometimes you know, better, better time slots. Does it drive you as a viewer when you know someone is open to a fan 
to the fan culture thing rather than shut off? Do, so it, it makes me. It certainly makes me more likely to participate in campaigns aimed at saving them. Mm-hmm. So that's one that's happened with Constantine, um, and so I'm more likely to tweet about it because I want to support that community and stuff like that. Mm. I kind of like your question about like horror, and I think it's kind of interesting. This panel in terms of we have four really big fans, but three of us chose to totally erase most of the horror elements and really talk about sort of the fun parts of this show. And so I think that's part of it as well. You know, like, I mean, the parody of horror isn't necessarily explicit in a show like this in the way it is in an awesome film like Cabin in the Woods, but it's there somewhere kind of thing. And I think the fans taking that and, you know, kind of playing with it a little bit is sort of the fun part of it. I think horror has always been kind of, you know, campy, so there's, there's heaps to play with as a fan. Yeah, I mean, I, and I love the fact that Fuller gets on Twitter when the shows are airing in the US and he talks to the fans as it's happening, you know, almost a kind of teasing them about what's going to come up next. And it's almost like having a sort of little narrator in your head saying, you know, trying to ramp up the anticipation about, you know, the, the thrills and the scares in the episode that's about to come. And it's sort of bringing back this sort of communal aspect of... Um, I guess safety in numbers watching something terrifying but getting through it in the end and he's that sort of slightly malicious voice that's guiding you through it um, and it's certainly you know, good for the fans to have that it makes it less of a you know, just a thing we tune in for and something that you know, is participatory Absolutely. I think we might have to sorry okay um, well if you'd like to thank Craig, Sam and Amy for me thanks for coming on Hopefully we can see you after season three when Sam cooks us up a big feast. Yeah. Yeah. Based on the cookbook. Just before we do leave tonight, I think there was a few mentions of True Detective. True Detective is the next uh, focus that we're going to take in Talking TV. So there will be a night of True Detective talk in June. Uh, And then following that, at the end of season five of Game of Thrones, we'll be doing a Game of Thrones event here as well, which is just to be announced, which has just been announced. Uh Um, But for now, please, again, if you have any more questions and you want to ask on the way out, if you want to ask Amy how to get into slash fiction, I'm sure she'll help. (laughs) Um, Just pop down and say hello. But for now, just join me again in uh, thanking the speakers and Steph, our host. You have been listening to an Acme podcast. For more recordings of talks and live events, go to Acme Channel and the Acme website.